Today, I'm going to talk about why can I trust the Bible? What support or evidence do we have? We're on week two of our 40 days in the Word. The focus is on the Bible. We want to know the Bible backwards and forwards. We want to really know God's Word. Here's what we're asking everybody to do in case you weren't here last week. We're all reading two chapters a day. We started in Luke. So reading two chapters a day, you're going to read through the book of Luke, then John, then Acts, then Romans over these 40 days. It will actually take a couple more days than that to finish, like 43 days or something. But we're still calling it 40 days in the Word, but you get three bonus days for the same price. So we're asking you to read through the Bible together because we want to mature. We want to be the most mature church that we can be So already you've probably read the birth of John the Baptist. You read about Jesus' birth. Then you read about Jesus' childhood. Then you read about John the Baptist and his ministry. Then you read Jesus getting baptized and then his temptation in the wilderness. Then you read about his healings, his miracles, and his teachings. That's what you did in those first 14 chapters that you already read. If you haven't read them, catch up. Reading two chapters a day, it doesn't take very much time, so you can catch up with us. This week, you're going to continue where you left off. So you're starting with Luke chapter 15, and it's going to continue with Jesus' healings, his ministry, his teaching, his miracles, and then it's going to go into his arrest, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. So you're going to see his complete life through the eyes of what Luke wrote. Luke learned his stuff from Peter and from Jesus' mom. He wasn't an eyewitness to these things. He gets it from them. Then once you're finished with Luke, you're going to also this week read four chapters in John. And it's going to be John's writings. And he writes about different things about Jesus that Luke didn't talk about. And John was an eyewitness. He actually lived with Jesus for three years. So I hope you're enjoying the reading. I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. And like I said, it's not too late to catch up with us and join us so we're all together on the same page reading through these books of the Bible together. The hope is after 40 days, you keep reading. The goal is, oh, I, did, I finished it. I'm done. Good. No, I'm hoping that it becomes a habit. Like, wow, I want to read 1 Corinthians now and that you'll continue to read through the, the Bible. So as we're focusing on the Bible, the Bible is the most read book in all of history. It's the best-selling book in history. It's the most translated book in history. But is it God's word? Is it God's word? Here's what it says about itself. This is Paul. Paul wrote this to Timothy. And he said, all scripture is God-breathed. He's saying everything in the Bible is God-breathed, meaning it came from the mouth of God. So Paul is saying it's from God. And it says, it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It says so that you can be thoroughly prepared in life. That's why the Bible is written. And it's saying it's from God. It's God breathed. Some versions, when you read it, it says God inspired. But it doesn't mean like a man. Wow, that was inspiring. Doesn't mean like that. It means God inspired, meaning God's the one that gave that person that message to write down. It's a message from God. Here's Psalms 119.86. All of your commands can be trusted. The Psalmist David is talking about God. All of your commands can be trusted. What commands is he talking about? The things from the Bible. That's what he's referring to. Everything that God says can be trusted. So, the Bible claims to be God's word, but is it or is it really just fables? Is it really something that we can trust? Time Magazine 
put it on the cover of Time Magazine, not once but twice. One time it said, how true is the Bible on the cover of Time Magazine? Another time it said, is the Bible fact or fiction? So even Time Magazine addresses this because they know that this is something that people think about. Like, is the Bible really, tr- really true? Is it just something my mom told me about and I believe it for emotional reasons? Or is it really true? So I want to talk about how can I trust the Bible? How can I really trust it? Well, one of the reasons you're going to trust it, you can fill in the blank, is it is historically accurate. What I'm saying here is the Bible is more than doctrine and theology and morals and ethics. It's also true history. When you're reading the Bible, it's talking about real people. It's talking about real nations, talking about real kings, talking about real rivers, real mountains, real oceans. And when it talks about the Mediterranean Sea, that's a real body of water. It's talking about real battles that took place. Um, You know, there'll be battles that took place, and then archaeologists go to where those battles supposedly happened, and they find like arrowheads, and find all the, you know, they find all these things that are evident, like, wow, it's just like the Bible said. There's so much of that stuff that, you know, it's known that these things occurred. It's known that there was a King David that lived, that there was a King Solomon that lived. You know, it, it's, it's known not just because the Bible said it, but because the archaeology, the archaeology their, their evidence points it out as well. Hebrews 6.18 says, it is impossible for God to lie because God is truth. So that's an important thing for us, that we want to know the truth. We want to know the truth. In Psalms 33.4, it says, the word of the Lord is right and true. And it's not just right and true about salvation. The word of the Lord is right and true about history. It's historically accurate. Now, how would you judge if a piece of literature is historically accurate? Well, one of the things you want to ask is, is this an eyewitness account? What's written? Is the writer the eyewitness? Or is it a, you know, secondhand? Like Luke, it wasn't an eyewitness. It was secondhand. Now, Luke was an eyewitness from the book of Acts because he was an eyewitness to what happened with Paul. But when he wrote the gospel of Luke, because he also wrote Acts, when he wrote the gospel of Luke, he wasn't an eyewitness to Jesus' life. He didn't know Jesus. He talked to Mary and to Peter, and then he wrote Luke, secondhand. Or is it legend, just something that's been carried down from year after year after year after year, and nobody really knows if that's, you know, it sounds like it's legend. But that, those are the things that you'd want to judge. Well, when you're reading the Bible, most of it is eyewitness. When the things, when Moses is taking the people, when he was in Egypt, you know, he's an eyewitness of that stuff. When he's a child, he's not, he can't remember what happened when he was a child, but he's talking to people that told him, yeah, when you were a kid, this happened. When you were a kid, that happened. He, he knows, you know, these are eyewitness accounts. When, when Joshua went into the promised land, he was there. So when he wrote the book of Joshua, he's writing about an eyewitness account of what happened. Matthew, eyewitness. John, eyewitness to Jesus' life. Like I said, Luke was an eyewitness to, in the book of Acts. Most of it's an eyewitness. Some of it is secondhand, but most of it is eyewitness. And that's how you discover the validity. Who did he talk to about this? Well, he talked to the person that saw it. Okay, a newspaper article. You believe it more when they've actually talked to the people that were there. You know, a newspaper could say, I think this happened. I think that happened. They're going to say, well, the people that were there that saw it, what did they say? 
That's what you want to know. So that's how you tell whether or not uh, something's good. Another thing is how careful was it being transmitted over the years? Because remember, there was no printing press. So everything was written by hand. Now, there's something that we have to understand, the Old Testament. The Old Testament, it's all written you know, by hand by the scribes. These are Jewish people. They believe it's the word of God. They have this system that they would use where when they would write it out by hand, they would check it letter by letter, word by word. What they're trying to do is they're trying to make sure that there's no errors because they have this belief that somehow they would be cursed if they messed up God's word. You know? So oh, we, don't want, we don't want God to curse us somehow because we've changed what was written. So they're very precise on what they say. And, um, and I trust them. I, I trust that the Jewish people have kept their Old Testament pure. They haven't purposely changed it. And I believe it because I understand how the religion thinks, but I believe it also because of archaeology. Back when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, at that time in history, the, the oldest handwritten copies, because everything's written by hand, was 900 years A.D. The Dead Sea Scrolls was found, and it was 100 years B.C., so it's now a thousand-year span with nothing in between. That was perfect. That was one of the reasons why everybody trusts the Old Testament because they read the Dead Sea Scrolls. They compared it to the scrolls 900 years later. I mean, 1,000 years later. A thousand years is enough time to, if you wanted to change things, you probably could, right? They, and it said the same thing. It said the same thing. The only book that the Dead Sea Scrolls didn't have in it was Esther. All the other books were in there. They said the same thing. So when you have a thousand-year gap, it's not telephone tag. Like I tell you something, then you tell you him, then you tell them, and then it comes out different. No, they were so cautious about doing it right that over a thousand-year span. Now, since that time, we found some other in between, and they say the same thing too. But at the time that they found it, there was a thousand-year gap. And they said the same thing. These are things that make you know that when the Jewish people say, we have been very careful not to change anything in the Old Testament, they're telling the truth. They're telling the truth. They're not changing it. They're keeping it exactly how it was because of their beliefs about it. They, they would be horrified to have anybody mess with their Bible and change it. Now, with the New Testament, things were a little bit different. In the New Testament, uh, Christians were being persecuted and killed. The mindset was different. The mindset was write as many copies as you can and get it out. Write as many copies as you can and get it out. And because of that, there's so many old copies because they were just, they had a job to do. Get the word out as fast as we can because we're being killed. You know, I had to get the, more copies than my life, you know. And uh, so what happened is we've already found over 3,000 really, really old copies. They're in different continents, still in that area, but Europe, in Africa, in Asia. And the same thing is they'll have mistakes in them. Like they weren't as careful, like a page will be missing. And then in that region, you might have, you know, a hundred copies missing that page or a couple of lines were missing and whoever wrote it missed some lines somehow. So now in that region, they have the whole Bible except for those lines or a misspelled word. And in that region, everyone has that word misspelled. But how do we know what the real spelling is? Because the 20 copies that have a misspelled word, the other 3,980 have it spelled right. The 100 copies that have that page missing, the other 2,900 have the page in there. And I think that's how God safeguarded it, by getting them to write as many copies as possible 
If somebody misspelled a name, it didn't matter. Because anybody that copied that one would now have that name misspelled, but all the other ones have it spelled right. So it's safeguarded. What I'm trying to say is anybody that really studies it believes that you're reading the right thing. The only person that doesn't believe that you're reading what they really wrote are people that haven't put time into studying it. But if you study it, you can be pretty sure when I'm reading the Old Testament, this is what was written. When, I was re- when I'm reading, like, Paul said this, that's what Paul said. It hasn't been changed over the years like some people might uh, lead you to believe or think. And the other thing is archaeology. You know, like, as Paul is speaking in the theater in Athens, where the theater's still there, <laughs> you know, you can, you can go see it. Now, it's in ruins, you know, but it's there, and you can see it. And they say, this is the theater in Athens. This was here since, you know, 300 years B.C., and stuff like this. When it talks about Herod's temple, it's there. In the book of Acts, for example, it talks about 54 cities, 39 countries, nine different islands he traveled to, and all of those cities and all those places are still here. You know, it's, it's real geography. It's not something that he made up. So it's talking about real places, real things. And usually what happens is we have an idea about something that we believe, and the Bible says something differently, so we believe the Bible's wrong. For example, during Solomon's time, there were no horses in the Middle East. But you read about his kingdom, and it says that they had horses and all this type of stuff. Thinking, they, they, there were no horses there. So a lot of people really, you know, had a problem with what the Bible was saying. But then later on, archaeology finds all the ho- thousands, by the way, thousands of horse stables were found. So, but they just didn't find it yet. And in their mind, since it wasn't like that, how could this be true? But let me tell you this. They wouldn't have found thousands of horse stables unless there was horses there. You know, so, but today, in today's, um, no one doubts it. It's not something everybody, today people aren't saying, oh, Solomon, not educated people. They're not saying Solomon uh, that's impossible because of the horses, because people know now. It's like the Hittites. The Hittites were a group of people that had a kingdom in the Bible, but it was one of those places that they never found any ruins for it or any evidence for it. So some people thought, well, this is probably not true. It's probably, you know, there are no Hittites. Or, you know, but in the uh, early 1900s, Hugo Winkler discovered it as an archaeologist. He, he discovered it. He, he discovered the capital city, and you can go, go visit the ruins now. I mean, now everybody believes that the Hittite kingdom was there. So what you find with archaeology is the longer that time goes on, the more and more it shows, oh, the Bible was true. So far, there's not been an archaeological find that showed the Bible was false, okay? Oh, Archaeologists found this, so the Bible wasn't true. That's never happened. It's always like with time it finds something to say, oh, so the Bible said something about that. Oh, the Bible said that king existed. We didn't know about that. Oh, you know, so when it comes to history, it is accurate. The second thing is it's scientifically accurate. People who think the Bible scientifically inaccurate, they probably just don't know what the Bible says. It's, it's possible they don't know science, but it's probably a greater chance that they just don't know. They've never studied the Bible enough to understand it. You know, God invented the laws of science. And the Bible is never going to have bad science in it. 
But the Bible is not a scientific textbook. We don't get together and we say, let's build a rocket. Okay, let's read the Bible and learn how. It's not a scientific textbook. But what I'm saying is it doesn't have bad science in it. There's not things in there that are bad science. Kepler said, the, he's a famous mathematician and astronomer. He said, science is simply thanking God's thoughts after him. Like God's the one that made these laws of science, and we're just discovering them later, sometimes a thousand years, you know, a long time later, but we're just discovering them as we go. One thing about science is it's constantly changing. See, science is constantly disproving themselves. They're not disproving the Bible ever. They're constantly disproving. What I mean by this is what scientists taught 1,500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, scientists disproved that stuff. And says, no, science was wrong. What the scientists said 1,500 years ago, there were 1,000 years ago from now, science was wrong. And then 750 years ago, you know what scientists were doing? They were saying, what those scientists have said 1,000, I mean, 250 years ago is wrong. And then 400 years ago, they're looking at what the science said 750 years ago, and they said, what science was saying here is wrong. And let me tell you this. Your third grade science book, why does no one use it anymore? <laughs> why? Because it's wrong. Think about that. Your third grade science book, because in the time that you were in third grade to now, they made enough discoveries that it's no longer accepted for the classroom. They've made changes. In fact, most science books that you read in college, while you're reading it, there's advances going on. And when you're reading it, there's going to be probably something in there that's already obsolete. What I'm trying to say is when people say, well, I trust science, you trust in a group of people that are constantly telling you what we used to believe is wrong. What I believe back there was wrong. What I believe back there, that's who you're trusting. Okay, how many things, how many times have you read an article talking about medical science that a pregnant woman shouldn't eat this that 10 years ago people thought it was okay? I'm just talking about 10 years, okay? What is that? Science is saying we were wrong. We were wrong just 10 years ago. Okay, think about it. When people put their faith in science, they're putting their faith in someone that's completely always saying, oh, I was wrong, sorry, forgive me. I was wrong, sorry, forgive me. I was wrong, sorry, forgive me. Okay, there are some laws, okay? Some science is laws, like gravity, boom. That's never going to change. Laws are things that are proven without a doubt. But there's a lot of science that's just wrong because they just, they're constantly learning. If they thought they were right, they would stop learning and studying and researching, right? If you really thought you had it all, you wouldn't research anymore. What I'm saying is they're researching things that they thought were right, but it doesn't seem right, so they're investigating more and more and changing their view. Science is constantly changing their view because they're constantly learning. But you don't see science proving the Bible wrong. It's not that type of thing. But I think it's silly to put my full trust into Something that we know, some of the things that you're going to learn this year in science, 20 years from now, they're going to say, oh, that, you really shouldn't eat that. How many things were you, you know, that you thought was okay 
25 years ago, and they say, if you eat too much of it, now it causes colon cancer or something. You didn't, but 25 years ago, they said, eat your heart out. You know, you didn't know you were eating your colon out, right? But we just didn't know. But I'm trying to say that, that it's constantly changing because they're learning. But when you read the Bible, it's not going to change. Look at Psalms 120, uh, 148. Let every created thing give praise to the Lord, for he issued his command, and they came into being. He established them forever and ever, and his orders will never be revoked. What this is saying is things like the second law of thermodynamics says as time goes by, things deteriorate. And he's saying it's a law. He's the one that put that into place. It didn't change. Gravity, like I said earlier. One of the proofs that the Bible came from God is what's not in there. What's not in there? Because Moses, for example, Moses was educated being the adopted grandson of Pharaoh. He was educated in Egypt. But none of the wacky Egyptian stuff that they believed that we think is like crazy stuff today is in the Bible. Now, the Egyptians were brilliant when it came to architecture, things like that. They built the pyramids. But they had some wacky beliefs. You know, they believed the earth was flat, and they believed it was sitting on five pillars holding it up. I don't know what they thought was holding up the pillars. You know, but, but they had some wacky things that now we would laugh at. Their idea was that the world has to be flat. It can't be round, because if you fell down and it's round, you'd roll up the earth. Of course it's flat. Come on. It's obvious to everybody. Test it out and see. You know, so, but people had you know, things like this because... Their ability to test things, that's where they could go. But why didn't any of that nonsense make it in the Bible? Or you think the Babylonians, when Daniel, he was educated in Babylon. They also have some wacky stuff that they believed. Why didn't any of that get in the Bible? You know, some of the things that we know are wrong today. But you would think if the Bible was written by man and a human mind, they would put stuff in there that's like what you find in Hinduism, where in Hinduism, the earth is being carried by elephants, and if they move, that's why you feel an earthquake. You know, so you find stuff like that in the Bible, you know, things that are ridiculous, but you can't find it there because it's God's word. It's not man. You know, it wasn't until Copernicus, Galileo, and Columbus that people started believing that the Bible, I mean, that the earth was round. So when people that were Bible believers, not necessarily, there's a lot of Christians that follow science today and back then too, okay? Science is what they really trust in more than the Bible. But they, they believe in Jesus. They believe, you know, they're, they're Christians. They're real Christians. But back in that day, there were Bible believers that would say Isaiah 40, 22. They said, look at the Bible, God is enthroned above the sphere of the earth. And they would argue the earth is round. They say prove it, and they couldn't because they didn't have the science to prove it. They were believing it by faith because they believed God's word. They had personal experience with God. It changed their life, so they believed God's word. And they were treated like fools. They were rejected because they believed the Bible over man's science that proved Watch, I'm going to drop a ball. Boom, it stops. If the earth is round, why isn't the ball rolling? See, that was man's science. So um, we, you know, people that believe the Bible were seen to be kind of like, you know, 
You know those Christians. They're simple-minded. They, they just believe anything. How about this one? The oldest piece of literature in the world is the book of Job. And he says, God stretched the sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Now, people believe that because they believe the Bible. So the stupid believers would say, well, the Bible says the earth is just hanging out there. It's round, and it's hanging out there on nothing. They said, then what, why doesn't it fall down? Come on, use your brain. If some, here, I'm going to take my uh, ball. I'm going to take a rock. I'm going to hang it on nothing. Boom. You idiot. What you're thinking? But, but the Bible says it's round, and it's hanging on nothing. Well, then you're stupid to believe the Bible. I'm telling you, this is the type of arguments that took place. When you believe the Bible and you're saying, I don't understand. I can't prove it science, scientifically. But God said it's round and hanging on nothing. I believe him. But you're stupid because you can't prove it. I'm telling you, there's things in the Bible today that you can't prove that are right. And, the Bi- and science never over time disproves the Bible. Over time, science gets it right. It catches up with the Bible. Because now every scientist you know, understands the earth is round. It just took them 2,000 years longer to get there. And every scientist believes that it's hanging on nothing. But it just took them, you know, 3,000, 4,000 years later to discover that. But who told Job this? Why did that stuff get in the Bible and not the nonsense that everybody else believed? Because it's God's word. It's God's word. Hipparchus counted the stars. And he did a... A dissertation on it. Uh, there's 1,022 stars in the universe. How do you know? I went to the desert and I counted them. He was a genius, by the way. You know, this is a guy. Well, uh, that was 150 BC. 300 years after that, uh, Ptolemy uh, discredited him and said, no, he, didn't. he missed these four. I counted them. There's 1,026. And then he became the new science hero. 300 years. It took him 300 years later before someone counted four new stars that he missed. So, but people argued with them because there were some people back then that believed the Bible and they said, but wait a minute, the Bible says in Jeremiah 33, 22, the number of stars are infinite. There's so many that you can't count them. And you know what they'd say is, you're an idiot. I counted them with my own eyes. You can count them. There's 1,026, I guarantee it. I counted them with my own eyes. Everybody knows that the stars are infinite, you know. But what I'm trying to say is the way that science is, that's, how they, that's all they could do. They didn't have a better way. And with time, they catch up with the Bible. And they find out this is right in the Bible. Oh, they found out this is right. Oh, they found out this is right. And you see that over and over. Biology, chemistry, there's all kinds of things. I could probably spend... A couple, a whole series just on stuff like this. Like a medical uh, bubonic plague in the Middle Ages. The, they didn't understand germs. People that believe the Bible, in Leviticus, it told people that when someone has a sickness, you have to separate them from the camp. You have to do a quarantine for seven days to see what's happening to them, to make sure it doesn't spread to other people. But science, remember germs, you can't see germs. And scientists didn't know germs. The word germ wasn't in the Bible. It just told you what to do to protect your people. So there are people that were saying, the Bible says this, the Bible says that, but the scientists didn't believe them because there's no evidence. You know, 
it's impossible. It's impossible. It, I don't know what you're talking about. They were looking for rat mice bites on the people's body because they would have someone with a bubonic plague sleeping in the same bed with the mom. And then the mom died too. And they still didn't believe that it had it. They still, because they didn't understand germs. And what are scientists? They want to think, well, show me proof. Show me proof. And they didn't have the technology to show that kind of proof. So they didn't believe it because they want to believe what they see, what they can understand. They don't want to believe anything by faith. And it would take faith for me to accept this quarantine idea. It took one-fourth of all of Europe to die because of people not wanting to listen to the Bible. And the people that were saying, no, quarantine them, no, quarantine them, because they had no science backing them. They only had the Bible. They were seen like the idiots, you know, trying to save the lives of millions and millions of people. So not knowing the truth can be deadly uh, to people. In Proverbs uh, 35, it says, every word of God is flawless. Not every word of mine. Every word of God is flawless. Psalms 12, 6, the words of the Lord are flawless like silver refined in a furnace of clay and purified seven times. Then, in Jesus' day, the way that they would show that the Bible is true uh, is they, they didn't have the science stuff and, and archaeology and stuff like that going on, but that what they could do is prophecies because they would see what was written down and they could tell when it came true. There's over 300 prophecies just about Jesus that all came true. And we use those same things today because some of the prophecies, you know, one of the prophecies that said that Israel would get their land back, that's an astonishing one because Israel lost their land in 70 AD. It took them 1,890 years or something or less than, you know, 70 years or something to get their land back. Can you imagine someone making a prophecy that someday the Native Americans are going to get this land back? You would say... You're out of your mind. That's never going to happen because at this point, it's just too late. But that's what they said. Someday, they're going to get their land back. They got it back in 1948. They lost it in 70 AD. That's impossible for someone to predict something that's going to happen 2,000 years later. But they got their land back. We just opened up an embassy in Jerusalem. They've got their land back. So there's uh, all these things. Psalm 22 was written by David in the Jewish Bible a thousand years before Jesus came, 800 years before the Romans came. Talking about Jesus, and then talking about when he dies, didn't give his name, but the Messiah. It says, it starts by verse one saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same words that Jesus quoted on the cross. But when you get to verse 18, it says, They pierced my hands and my feet, they're gambling for my clothing. This is written 1,000 years before Jesus came. This is written 800 years before the Romans came. The Romans invented the crucifixion. Study history. See, if, see when the crucifixion got started. This was written 1,000 years before Jesus, and it's exactly how he died. And it's not just because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John state that he died that way. Josephus, the non-Christian historian, say, says he was crucified. Cornelius Tacitus, a non-Christian uh, Greek historian, said he was crucified. Exactly like it was said a thousand years before. So what I'm saying is uh, the, the thing that they used in their time, and we still use it today, is the pro- they didn't know science, they didn't know that part, but they had the prophecies. It says this, he died exactly like it said he would a thousand years ago. They knew when David 
Like I said, the Jewish people would never purposely change their Bible to say that Jesus is the Messiah because they don't accept him as the Messiah. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't purposely change things to say that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. You see what I mean? It says in their Bible that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, the Messiah. So um, when they see all these predictions coming through, uh, true, there was 300 predictions about Jesus' life that came true. Can you imagine me going to you and saying, I predict 300 things about your life and every single one of them happens? It's, it just can't happen. No one can get that lucky. It would have to be God that told them these things. In, first, in 2 Peter 1.21, it says, No prophecy ever originated from humans. Instead, it was given by the Holy Spirit as humans spoke under God's direction, which means God had to tell them. Do you know the rules in the Bible in those days? If you were a prophet, you were considered a false prophet when you told one prophecy that didn't come true. All you had to do is say one thing, and if it doesn't come true, you're dead because there was a death penalty because that's what they believed. If you're going to be a prophet of God, you have to be 100% correct or you're not a real prophet and you die. So a prophet better know what they're talking about. There are people that think they're prophets today. Psychics, for example. Have you ever thought this? They say, well, tell me your name. If you're a psychic, you tell me my name. <laughs> oh, can I get your credit card number? If you're a psychic, you tell me my credit card number. In fact, if you're a psychic, you tell me the next lottery pick. You know, come on. Have you ever wondered, why aren't psychics winning the lottery? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that? Do you think if you could really tell things, you know, um, there's a lot of things out there that people claim to be able to say, tell things, but a lot of it's just hogwash. You shouldn't believe that stuff. In Matthew 26, 56, but this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scripture. This is Jesus speaking. He, and he's talking about prophecies. He's talking about his life. These things are happening to me. It's so that it's to fulfill what was already written. These are prophecies coming true. That's what he's saying. In Revelation, it's talking about prophecies. And it says, The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place, things that were going to take place in the future. He told them ahead of time, and then they come true later. Um, a fourth thing is it's thematically unified. The reason why this is hard to believe is it's written over a 1,600-year span by 40 different authors from three different continents, from three different languages. Some of them were priests. Some of them were kings. Some of them were fishermen. Some of them were in prison. Some of them wrote in caves. Some wrote while they were in a ship. You know, they're all over these places writing these things. And there's a total of 40 people that wrote them. And it ended up being 66 books total. And it works like it's one theme. For example... Mohammed, it was one person that wrote the Quran. When one person's writing something, you can expect it to say one theme. Confucius, one guy writing, one theme. You know, Buddha, one guy writing, one theme. But 40 different people writing over, six, over 1,600 years, 66 different books, and it's run together from the beginning of the end to the end as one theme, it doesn't make sense because people can't do that. It's hard to get two people to write something in the same theme 
uh, let alone uh, 40 people over that time span, you know, businessmen, scholars, tax collectors, attorneys, a doctor, sailors, soldiers, poets, prophets, uh, uh, prisoners, all these people wrote, and it's the same theme. It's all about the redemption of Christ from beginning to end. In Luke 24, 27, it says this. Here's Jesus' words. Beginning with Moses, this is what he said. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all scriptures concerning himself. See, because we think the New Testament is about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Israel. No. The New Testament's about Jesus. The Old Testament's about Jesus. When Abraham, for example, and God said, I want you to sacrifice your son to me, his one and only son. So he gets up there, and then, of course, God stops him. But what is it talking about? It's a story of God. Abraham's the part of God sacrificing his one and only son for us. When they would sacrifice the lamb in the temple, that's the symbol of Jesus. He's called the lamb of God, dying for us. They would place their hands on the lamb, and then they do this uh, symbolic prayer thing, and then the lamb would die for its sins, for their sins. So they say, God, thank you for... Uh, forgiveness of our sins, and then they have a big celebration and they eat the lamb and become a great meal of celebration. We're forgiven. That was a symbol of Jesus. You know, Jesus is the lamb of God. He comes, he takes the sins of the world, everybody in here, he takes the sins of the world upon himself. He dies on the cross paying off the penalty of our sins. He rises again showing that he conquered our sins. In other words, nobody's good enough to reach God, but he was good enough to reach you. You know, and he said, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. I paid the price. God himself coming to earth as man. From beginning to end, you know, story after story after story is a story that's about Jesus. Even though at the time, they didn't always have that connection. This is why I want to teach that class step-by-step through the Old Testament and step-by-step through the New Testament on Wednesday nights because I'm going to be able to take the time to explore these things with you because my goal is for you to be the most mature believer that you can be the most mature, solid believer in Christ that you can imagine. But it's hard to do it in 35 minutes. You know, but in 13 weeks in the fall, on Wednesday nights, 13 weeks in the spring, I think I can cover a lot of stuff. I'm going to do my best. In John 5, 39, it says, this is Jesus speaking again. He said, you search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Now, remember, when Luke, and Luke and John, when he's saying this, the New Testament hasn't been written yet. He's talking about the Old Testament on both of these. So when he says, beginning with Moses, well, obviously that's Old Testament. But this one says, you search the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, what the Jewish people have, because you believe they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. So Jesus was very clear that the scriptures point to one person, and it's all about Jesus. The Old Testament's pointing to him, the New Testament is pointing back. He's the central focus. Number five, it's confirmed by Jesus. What I mean by this is you've heard people say, I trust what Jesus said, but I don't know about those other guys. Like what Jesus said, okay, he's, he's cool, but what these other guys wrote, I don't know. Well, I find it funny. Jesus trusted those other guys. Jesus trusted what Paul wrote. Jesus trusted what these other people wrote. He says this, Jesus said, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He's saying that what was written in their laws 
are true forever. In uh, John 10, 35, he said, Scripture is always true. And when you read Jesus in his arguments and discussions with the people, what does he use to prove his point? Scripture. Scripture. Jesus doesn't bring out... uh, People think that Jesus brings out a lot of new messages. He doesn't. And people say, well, come on. They had the Ten Commandments. Wasn't it Jesus that said, you don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments. You do these two commandments, and you've got them all. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's something new, right? It's not. Those are Old Testament Bible verses he's quoting. Those were already there. They were already there for 1,500 years when he said that. He just took an Old Testament verse and said, if you, do, if you keep these two Old Testament verses, loving God and loving your neighbor, then you're automatically doing the Ten Commandments. It wasn't new. What I'm trying to say is he argued by using Scripture to prove his point. You can't do that if you don't believe the Scripture. You know, so he, belie- he didn't just say, I believe what I say. I don't believe what those other guys say. In fact, he used what the other guys said to prove to other people what was right. In Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. What he's saying is, is when you obey Scripture, what's, you have to believe Scripture is true to tell people that you're not blessed unless you obey it. You have to believe that it's true. So he believed what the other people said. Augustine said, if you believe in the Bible, what you like, and you don't believe what you don't like, it's not the Bible you're trusting. You're just trusting in yourself. And then number six, it has survived all attacks. The Bible is the most despised, most denied, most disputed, most dissected, most debated, most outlawed, most destroyed, most banned book in history. Millions of people have died because they refuse to give up their Bible. It's still illegal in some countries. In North Korea, it's still illegal. I'm hoping that uh, things, I'm I'm excited to see the news. I'm hoping things work out. I would love for us to build relationships with uh, these people. And, um, but right now it's still illegal. Um, think about this, how crazy this is. This just blows my mind. I smuggled Bibles into China. How ridiculous is that? I did, I did. I smuggled Bibles into China, smuggled, not drugs, <laughs> smuggled, secretly. I had to hide it from them. They allow me to go in. You're allowed, if they check your bags, you're allowed to walk in, and if they see that you're an American and you have a, an English Bible, they'll allow you to have one Bible because they're trying to be nice to outsiders. They actually do. So I was allowed to have one Bible, but I wasn't allowed to have the third. I didn't have my Bible because I was saving room for theirs. I wasn't allowed to have 30 of them all in Chinese. I wasn't allowed to have one of them in Chinese, okay? Certainly not 30, and going back and forth bringing Bibles in during the, you know, during the rush hour when most people are going through so you can step in. You know. Now let me ask you this. How ridiculous is that? How ridiculous is it that I could go to jail for what I was doing? That we live in a world that I can go to jail because I'm trying to get a Bible through. Is that outrageous? It's outrageous. I could be kicked out of the country and they never let me go back What's his crime? He tried to bring a Chinese Bible in here. Okay, that's the world that we live in. That's how people have treated the Bible. It's, it's, 
it's outrageous. You can't believe that this is a world that we live in, but it is. So you would think if so many people are so much against the Bible, because at one time, one-third of the world wouldn't let you bring in Bibles. One-third of the world at one time. It's still in the Middle East. I can go in with an um, uh, English Bible, but if I'm caught bringing in a bunch of Arabic Bibles, I could lose my life in some of the countries. It depends on the country. So what I'm trying to say is they've attacked it for centuries, but they haven't disproven anything yet. You know, now, I know when you read the Bible, you have to read it. You know, I say everything, every word in the Bible is true. But when you read a metaphor, you have to understand it's a metaphor, right? When you read in poetry, you read poetry. Like, um, you know, I've said this before. Like, the Bible says what it means and means what it says. I've said that before. But if you really listen to those words, that's not true. That's not. The Bible doesn't say what it means and means what it says. The Bible means what it means. Period. It means what it means. It doesn't always mean what it says, because what if it's a metaphor? If it's a metaphor, then it means the meaning of the metaphor, not the meaning of the word. You know, but what I'm trying to say is, obviously, when you read literature, you have to read it like with, with common sense. Oh, this is poetry. Oh, this is this, or that's an analogy, or stuff like that. Obviously, you have to use your brain when you're reading it. But what I'm trying to say is, that analogy is a message of God to me. He wanted that analogy in there so I would learn from it. He wanted that poetic writing in there, said it that way, to, to get me this message. Is the message what the word said? No, it's the meaning of what it said. But in saying that, it's not hard to understand what the Bible means. I'm not trying to say, oh, it's hard to understand. No, but if you understand how to read poetry, you can understand that part. If you understand how meta- metaphors work, if you don't, then you're going to be mixed up and you're, you're going to start a wacky religion or something. But if you know how to just read literature like any probably high school educated person, you can read it and understand it. In Matthew 24, 35, it says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So God, uh, Jesus is saying it lasts. You know Voltaire, the famous uh, French philosopher? Brilliant man. If you read some of his stuff, it's brilliant. But he was also an atheist. One of his quotes was, he said, a hundred years from today, the Bible will be obsolete. You know what was going on in his home a hundred years after he made that statement? His home was bought by the French Bible Society, and they were selling Bibles out of his home. I just think that's God's sense of humor, you know? Like, only God would work out that, you know? Like, the guy that says it's going to be obsolete, his home is being uh, selling Bibles out of it. So, there, you know, the Bible stood up to the test of time. In every way. First Peter 1, uh, 24 and 25, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You know, we don't read yesterday's newspapers or last week's newspapers. We want to read today's. But the Bible, the Bible, you know, it's old, but, you, but it's relevant to today. It's relevant to every culture in every language, but it's written by dead languages in a dead culture a culture that doesn't exist anymore, languages that don't exist anymore, and it relates to every language alive today and every culture today. Like when I was in China, I was worshiping with those people that I smuggled the Bibles to. They were reading the Bible, worshiping, preaching, and it was totally relating to their life. 
just like it did to mine here, just like it did when I was in Kenya and Rwanda, just like it did in the Philippines, just like it did in Costa Rica and Brazil and Mexico and all the different places that I've been doing mission work. Every culture, different language, they all worship God, and it's relating to their life. What book written that far back can relate to our lives today when it makes sense? But the Bible does. And you know how people say, you believe what you believe, and I'll believe what I believe. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. You know, it sounds nice and everything. But think of it like this. Think about it. I know this example I'm going to use is kind of like maybe silly a little bit, but let's say you believe in gravity, and that's good for you. But what's good for me is good for me. What's good for you is good for you. So I don't believe in gravity. So I'm going to jump off this building because I don't believe it. You know, and what I'm trying to say is when you don't believe the truth, it could be deadly. One-fourth of Europe died because they just wouldn't believe the Bible about quarantine. You know, one-fourth died because they just wouldn't believe. They refused to believe the Bible. It could be deadly. So you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe. No, it should be like this. I'm seeking the truth. You seek the truth. Maybe I'm not where you are yet. Maybe you're not where I am and you think you are, you know, but I'm going to seek the truth. That's what it is. The other one is actually a closed-minded way of thinking. You believe what you want to believe. I believe what I want to believe. It's kind of like a foolish way of thinking. But you say, I'm seeking the truth and I'm going to seek the truth. Because if scientists are trying to, because they are honestly trying to seek the truth, okay, but they're discovering that things are wrong. That's why they're discovering it, because they're seeking the truth. I want to be the same way. We should constantly be trying to seek and learn more and more. You know, God gives you the freedom to thumb your nose at him. You can reject God for the rest of your life. He's not going to force you. He's not going to force you. You know, it's like a marriage. I was sharing in a class that we had on Sunday. In marriage, if I said, I love you and I'm forcing you to love me back, I'm forcing you to marry me, you know what we'd call that? Rape. We call that rape. If God forced you to do what he wanted you to do, we call it kidnapping. Let me put, whether you call it rape or kidnapping, we call it a crime, and it's a wicked crime. God will never force you to believe. He will never force you to love him. He said, I love you. I give my life for you. I've paid the price for you. It's free. Come on in. But he will not make you do it because he's not a rapist. He's not a kidnapper. He loves you enough to allow you to make your own decision. But you can reject him the rest of your life. But one day you will face him. In number seven, it has transforming power. Nothing changes lives like the Bible. I've seen drug addicts through reading the Bible leave their addiction. I've seen alcoholics through reading the Bible leave their addiction. I've seen self-centered men who abuse and misuse women by reading the Bible. They've changed and became good husbands. I've met people that would rip you off to make a buck. They read the Bible and it changes their life. It still changes lives today. I've heard testimony just in this room. I've heard testimony after testimony after testimony of, of different people in this room that you've shared with me about your life and then you turn to God and, and some of you have made you know, beginning steps in recovery. Some people have made dramatic changes their whole lives. My marriage turned around. You know, my relationship with my kids turned around. I've just heard so many of those. There's a song. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Everybody knows that saying, amazing, amazing grace. That was written by a slave trader. He was a slave trader. He's writing his personal testimony. What happened is he started reading the Bible and God convicted him and turned his whole life around. And he just, he obviously he quit the slave trade and turned to God and he wrote a song like Amazing Grace. Like, how can God be so amazing to forgive me? Because he thought if there's anybody that deserves hell, it's him. So he wrote the song Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. Why was it so sweet to him? It was sweeter to, to him than a lot of us. Because I'm going to tell you, the more guilty you feel about your life, the more sweet grace sounds. Sometimes, you know, I'm going to be honest. I was born in a pretty good family. My dad was kind of uninvolved, but we had clothes and food, and he, wasn't, he never beat me or anything. You know, he did give me some good hard swats when I needed them. But, you know, but I was raised pretty good, and was able to go to college, and, you know, I'm, you know, I've had it pretty good. Um, I never, I never, um, first time I had sex was when I was married. Never used drugs, never smoked. Um, uh, first time I tasted alcohol, I was 22 years old. I've never been drunk. Um, but I'm just trying to say, I lived a pretty clean life. The truth is, sometimes when you think that you've lived a pretty clean life, you don't appreciate God's forgiveness as much as somebody who was a slave trader. I bet you the sound is a lot sweeter to him. The saved a wretch like me. He felt like he was a wretch. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, because he was just so blind, but now I see you. It's written by a slave, a slave trader. Okay, that's what God does. You read the Bible, and it changes lives. It's changed my life. It's changed your life. You know, if politics could change lives, if I really thought it could, I'd be a politician. I'm in the business of changing lives. That's why I'm not a politician. You know, we can pass laws, but, but laws don't change the human heart. I know that it takes God to change hearts. I want to be in the God business. I want to be involved with what he's doing to change the hearts of man. And John, it says, Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You see this in universities. The truth will set you free on some buildings. I'm, ta- I'm not talking about Christian universities, but just in u- the truth will set you free. That's not what it says. Okay, listen. If you continue in my word, meaning God's word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's not saying science is the truth that will set you free. On the science building, the truth will set you free. The Bible is not saying science is the truth that set you free. It's saying, if you continue in my word, because science might think it's true, and then 10 years from now, it's going to say, no, that wasn't quite accurate. It's the truth of God's word that's going to set you free. I'm sharing this message for one reason, really. We have a choice to make. What's the authority for my life? Do I live my life based on the word or based on the world? Based on Christ or based on the culture? Culture is going to change, which means you're going to constantly change. The world's going to change. You're going to constantly change. Or you're going to base your life on God's word. The opinions of man, your own opinions, or God. I want to be my own boss. I don't want God telling me what to do. Or are you going to be like, God, I trust you. I trust you. 
I'm putting my faith in you. The more you study the Bible, and that's why we're doing this six-week series, this 40 days, the more you're going to understand, wow, this is where I need to go. I want to finish with this last verse and lead us in a prayer. It says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God has a plan for your life. It's good. It's pleasing. It's perfect. And it's found in the word of God. It's not found anywhere else. It's found in the word of God. Let's pray. Dear God, we want you to be the authority of our life. And we know for that to happen, we need your word. So we're making a commitment to read your word, to study your word, to apply it to our life. We know you want us to have the best marriages, the best lives possible. Lord, we want to take your word and allow it in to help us to be the people that we need to be. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.